Our first guest is a senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales. He has a background in psychology um, and has taught safety risk management for more than 10 years. So I'd like you to please stand and welcome Dr. Carlo Caponecchia. Give him a big round of applause. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, and thank you for the, uh, the invitation to come and speak with you today. Um, I'm going to be talking about psychosocial hazards at work from within a workplace health and safety framework. Um, and the, an outline of what I'm going to be doing is talking about what do we mean by this term psychosocial, so the psycho what, then the psycho why, why are we talking about this at all? And the, the assumptions of thinking about this under a safety framework. We're going to be talking about what we should be doing about these kinds of hazards, what we are doing about these kinds of hazards, and then what are the barriers that are stopping us going from where we are to where we should be. So, psycho what? This is a term psychosocial that people are not very comfortable in using. And there's a range of reasons for that because people use this term differently based on their backgrounds. And people in universities are the ones who are most guilty of that, like myself. But basically, in organisations, when people hear the term psychosocial, they think that that means stress and only stress, or that it means mental health. And usually when it's mental health, it means mental health disorders. It's actually a bit broader than that. Psychosocial refers to a whole range of factors in the environment, including the social environment, and this is a social environment, for example. All those factors that can have an effect on our mental processes, our thoughts, our attitudes, our expectations, our perceptions and motivations, as well as our behaviour. And it's important to note that this is something that is biological, psychobiological, in fact. And that's the, the reason I put this picture there. Um, this is some street art from, uh, from behind RPA. Some of you may be familiar with, with where this is in Camperdown. And it's a nice reminder that when we talk about things that are psychological and psychosocial, we're talking about things that are real, that are physiologically mediated, rather than just things that are happening mystically in the air around your head. These things are real things that we're talking about uh, going on in your body. And typically when we talk about psychosocial issues, we're talking about hazards, psychosocial hazards. And, and these are the examples um, of the main hazards that we talk about in psychosocial hazards. You'll note there the, the, the definition. Um, aspects of job content, what's happening in the job, work organisation and management, and the environment and organisational conditions that have the potential to cause harm. And so the example of hazards that we tend to talk about are what's going on in terms of the task variety that you have and your ability to use the skills that you have, the workload, the pace of work, the schedule of work, 
control and autonomy, that doesn't mean that you get to control every aspect of your work. It just means that you get to make some decisions about your work, perhaps the order in which you do things, for example. The environment and equipment, the relationships and supervision and support that you have, the roles, so we often talk about role conflict and role ambiguity. Role conflict is the idea of your role having some parts of it that are fundamentally opposed to one another. So the best example of this is in a call centre where people are told to provide excellent customer service but don't spend too long on the phone. Do you see how there's a conflict there in that role? And I'm sure you can all think of examples in your own jobs where that kind of conflict exists. As well as issues of career development and bullying, harassment, violence and discrimination behaviours as well are counted amongst the psych hazards. And we're going to come back to these a little bit as we talk today, so I don't want to belabor those too much. But those are the kinds of, I think it's important to note that those are the hazards that we should be thinking about. When we're talking about psychosocial issues at work, it's those things that we should be thinking about. But a broader point I want to make is that it's not just about hazards and managing hazards. It's wider than that. Hazards exist within a work system, and that work system exists in a broader social system. And so when we're thinking about the things that can have a negative psychological impact on people at work, we need to think about work as a whole. And so here I've situated those hazards within organisational factors around culture and values and leadership, and in a wider environment with, you know, issues of job security and casualisation and location and geography. Just to give a bit of an example, I've been doing quite a bit of work lately in the aged care industry and there are a range of psychosocial hazards there including exposure to violence, including um, the difficulties of dealing with end of life issues and that's situated within organisational factors of staffing, which I'm sure you're all aware of, staffing and leadership, the provision of equipment, particularly equipment for um, assistive equipment in lifting and patient handling, and the wider social context, which unfortunately I feel generally is that aged care work is something that in our community is still not valued to the extent that it should be. It's low paid work, um, it's not, nobody uh, comes up to you in the street and pats you on the back for being an aged care worker, and perhaps they should. Um, it's very, very important work. Um, and so the wider social values about what that work is and how it functions in our community are important. That affects who does those jobs. It affects their motivations in those jobs and uh, their commitment to those jobs. So we can't just think about hazards. We have to think broadly about all of the issues that might affect um, psychosocial uh, functioning at work. So we've had a bit of a brief introduction, a, a lightning brief introduction to psychosocial hazards. I mean, we could talk about those all afternoon, all morning and afternoon. But I think it's also important to think about why are we talking about this? I think this is absolutely critical. 
The reason we're talking about psychosocial factors at all is because psychosocial factors are fundamental to workplace health and safety, absolutely core. They manifest in any industry, regardless of what job you do, what task you do, what equipment you use. They're there in your jobs, they're there in the jobs of your family and your friends, no matter if they're working in a mine or an office or wherever they are. Psychosocial issues are a common denominator to everyone. And so I would argue, though I'm biased I suppose, but I would argue that they should be one of the first things we should be talking about when we're thinking about work and when we're thinking about safety. Another important to make about why we're talking about psychosocial issues is that psychosocial issues, psychosocial factors contribute to other types of injury. So we're not just talking about psychological outcomes, negative psychological outcomes, but psychosocial factors have a role in other types of injury. And most notably, um, they have a role in musculoskeletal disorders. Now you'd all be familiar with musculoskeletal disorders, right? And manual handling issues. Yes? Good. That's a, whole different, that's a whole different talk that we don't have to have. Um, most people are not aware, however, that psychosocial factors have an important contributing role in, in contributing to musculoskeletal disorders. Now, we can talk about those in, we can talk about the mechanisms of that uh, if you'd like to later on in questions. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but it's a very important uh, thing for us to be talking about. And if your organisations are not thinking about psychosocial factors contributing to musculoskeletal disorders, well then some changes are necessary in your musculoskeletal disorder planning. Uh, so it might be very important that we do talk about that later. While psychosocial factors have been shown to have a role in musculoskeletal disorders, and there's very good evidence around this, it seems obvious that they have a role in all sorts of injuries, in affecting all sorts of hazards. And so these are really key issues for us to be thinking about. In case you're still not convinced, there's some more reasons why we're talking about psychosocial issues. Um, managing psychosocial hazards is part of the duties. So this is where we, we come in with the big stick and we talk about the regulations and the guides, um, in case I haven't convinced you yet. Health now explicitly includes psychological health. It was always there implicitly, but in the, uh, in the Model Act now, it explicitly includes psychological health. So when the Act says, the WHS Act says health, it means looking at uh, uh, protecting people's psychological health, and that's really important. We also have nationally agreed guidance from Safe Work Australia. That means that guidance is tripartite agreed between the unions, the regulators and the employers. It's agreed. That means no arguments. That means use the guide. So if you're looking for a place to start on psychological health at work, we should all be going to the nationally agreed national guidance. And that's that first document there at the, at the uh, 
at the top here. And that's available on the Safe Work Australia website. And further, further to that, there's a new international standard that's been adopted in Australia for safety management systems, um, ISO 45001. And while you may not have day-to-day -day contact with such documents, your organisation should know about them. Because what 45001 does is it explicitly says that organisations have to identify how work is organised, social factors including workload, work hours, victimisation, harassment and bullying, leadership and the culture of the organisation. Organisations have to identify those issues as part of their safety management systems. This is a really significant step forward um, in, in what organisations have to do. There's also, on the back of that, um, a, a, a child standard, if you like, uh, that's being developed on the back of 45001 that's specific to psychological health at work. And that's a process that I'm involved in with Standards Australia and um, the ISO. So really important, significant steps forward. And, and all of these things are pointing in one direction, which is that workplaces must consider psychological health as part of workplace health and safety. And so that's why we're talking about it today. So that's all very well and good. Um, told you what you must do, what we should do. Well, what we must do under law, so what should we do? How do we manage these issues? How do we manage psychosocial hazards at work? Well, the basic answer to that, and I know there's no basic answers, but the basic answer to that is we apply a risk management model. And this is the basic risk management model from the risk management standard. I don't want to belabour this, but we'll be talking about a couple of these steps. Um, firstly, you've got to look at the context. Whoops, sorry. Firstly, you've got to look at the context. You move on to identifying the risks, assessing and evaluating them, controlling the risks, and always communicating and consulting at all of those stages, and monitoring and review. And these arrows are meant to be suggesting that this is continually improved. We'll come back to some of these stages briefly. Applying that process, and all organisations are used to applying that process in, in safety, but applying that process has some assumptions and some values. And I think it's important that we think about those assumptions of the risk management framework when we move on to talking about some of the things that are currently implemented as strategies in this area. The assumptions of risk management are that we're being proactive and preventative. We're not sitting around and waiting for things to go wrong. We're predicting them and we're acting before people are harmed. That's very, very important. You control hazards at the source, which is another way of saying you're being preventative, and you're not focused on individuals or interventions that are about individuals, but you're more focused instead, as we've been saying, on controlling hazards at the source. All of these things we're going to come back to. And of course, as we've been saying in the risk management model, that there's continual improvement. We also talked about the importance of context 
I really do think that context is one of the most fundamental elements of what we do in safety, understanding the context of the work. For example, what is the facility type? Are we in a correctional facility, for example? Is that correctional facility in a remote or a rural area? How does that change the relationships between the people who are working there and their supervisors and the support that they could get? We have to think about context. Um, otherwise, you're using a cookie cutter approach to risk management and that can't be done. It has to be tailored to the actual work that's, being, that's, that's happening. After context, there's identification, and we've already been through these hazards very briefly. So you've got to establish the context, identify whether the hazard, what hazards you have, and move on then to controlling them. And this is where I really want to focus. We're supposed to control these hazards through work design and moving through the hierarchy of controls in a prioritised way. We're supposed to use a range of principles like consultation, effective training and assessment and skill development and task analysis and workflow analysis. And I'm going to give you some examples here of some of the things that should be used as controls for those hazards. So on the, on the, on the left there, uh, it's the hazards we've been talking about and some examples of controls. And while this is a bit small, I don't necessarily want you to get the detail of this, but you'll see there that consultation features quite a lot, it's collaborative, there's um, redesigning um, uh, job descriptions and role statements, um, using good reporting systems. But the point really in this table is what's not there. What kinds of controls are we not seeing? on that suggested list. And that's what I really want to focus on today. Because what's not there, what's not in the suggested list, is what most organisations are actually doing at the moment. So let's move on to talk about what organisations are doing. We talked about what we should do, what's really happening. What's really happening is that we're mostly getting strategies that are focused on individuals, or acting after the harm has occurred, or that don't directly address the hazards. And so in this way, if you remember the assumptions that we talked about before, what's happening is violating those assumptions. The examples um, that are often happening is mental health promotion, resilience training, which is a particular bugbear of mine, and wellness programs. Now, these strategies in and of themselves are fine. We should have mental health promotion, of course. Mental health promotion, what I mean by mental health promotion, is the idea that we increase awareness about what mental health conditions are and we normalise the experience so people know that they're not alone and normalise seeking help. That's a good thing, right? Right? Of course. It's absolutely a good thing. But it's not the place that we start under a workplace health and safety um, framework. Instead, 
we're supposed to deal with the harm in the work system. So rather than just telling people how to get some help with how they're feeling, we're supposed to redesign what's going on in the workplace that's making them feel that way. Does that make sense? Does that make this clear? Good. So rather than just telling people how to get better or how to deal better with how they're feeling, you're supposed to fix the work. And rather than just telling people how to exercise more so that they feel better, fix the work. We'd never do this with other hazards. We'd never use these kinds of strategies with other hazards. For example, can you imagine a scenario where someone works in a noisy work environment? Right? Can you imagine ever telling them to just get better at dealing with the noise? We would never do that. At the very least, we'd give them some hearing protection, and that would be the very, very bottom level of the controls. What should be happening is, of course, trying to reduce that noise, trying to use a different machine that makes less noise, trying to isolate the person from the noise. So we'd use much more effective controls. So we'd never accept these kinds of individualistic uh, strategies in other kinds of hazards. And so if, as I've said to you already, psychosocial issues are firmly within a workplace health and safety set of the, the duties of workplace health and safety, then why would we treat them differently when it comes to controls? And so the reason I've put a picture of a cupcake here <clears throat> is to sort of use a metaphor for these kinds of strategies. Um, because while these strategies in and of themselves can be okay, it's a question of priorities. It's kind of like these strategies are the icing on the cake. When you're making a cake, you don't start with the icing, do you? You start with the cake, right? You cook the cake first, and then you make the icing. So you've got to get the cake right before you have all these additional strategies of the icing on the top. These strategies also tend to be implemented pretty poorly. For example, encouraging people to talk about mental health without really giving them any skills to do so. I recall um, being asked by a senior colleague one time if I was okay. And I have to tell you, it was the single most patronising experience of my work life because I didn't have a relationship with this person that, that would enable them to ask me that and enable me to say no if I needed to. There wasn't a relationship of trust there. And so many organisations are just assuming that uh, individual workers are going to be able to go and ask one another whether they're okay and have deep conversations about mental health. And I think that's a very high bar, it's a very high expectation and not everyone can do that. And in fact, when it does happen in, in the wrong circumstances, it can actually make things worse. So yes, 
mental health promotion is fine, but so long as it's implemented well and so long as people are, are trained in, in what to do and, and what to expect. Another example a colleague told me about, she was doing some consultancy work, um, and in this particular workplace, the, the managers decided to offer everyone the opportunity to have a massage while they're at work. Does this happen to any of you? No? <laughs> yes? Okay. It's, it, it sounds like a nice thing, right? It sounds like a nice thing. But she reported that the staff became so tense before going to the massage because they had to finish all their work quickly before going to get massaged to come back to finish all the work that they weren't able to do while they were getting their lovely massage. Very poor implementation. So it sounds like a really nice strategy. You know, again, like the icing on the cake. But in practice, it didn't work. And of course, there's the old example of wellness programs. You know what I mean by wellness programs. They often have uh, encouraging people to exercise, to ride to work, um, gym memberships, etc. So, you know, we want everyone to ride to work, but we don't have any facilities for locker rooms and showers when you get to work and you're all sweaty. And, and the problem with this is that poor implementation of these things actually makes it worse than if they weren't there at all. Poor implementation of these things means that, that these strategies are firstly not delivered, but it also drives mistrust. Um, in, in the entire organisation. So, that, so it actually undermines it. And I don't know if, I'm continuing a baking theme here, <laughs> but I don't know if any of you are familiar with the program Nailed It on Netflix. It's an anti-baking program where <laughs> people who are very bad bakers go on television and attempt to create um, highly complex cakes. And this is the kind of result that they get. Which I thought was a, a great um, demonstration of how no amount of icing will fix a bad cake. And in our metaphor, the cake is the work. The cake is the work system. And that's what has to be designed well first, before you even think about putting any icing on top, where the icing is wellness and health promotion. So get the cake right first. There are also some barriers that stop us from going from where we are to where we should be. I want to talk about these very briefly. Um, work design, seems scary and abstract. People, when they hear work design, think that they need to knock the organisation down or the system down and start again. It's not like that at all. It's about making small, manageable changes and talking to people, being collaborative about how work could change. Who could report to who differently? How could the workflow change? It can be about very small changes that make big differences. Also, Workplace health and safety competencies, well, 
Workplace health and safety competencies are thin on the ground for a start, but they tend to focus on compliance. They tend to focus on tick the box to get this form finished so that the regulator's not going to come and look at us, rather than really understanding the core assumptions of that approach. And that's why I've been talking about those assumptions today in the hope of addressing this barrier. And there's also some major limitations in how we view mental health at work. And I want to briefly go through that with something I've called the scalp model. So this is a model of how mental health at work tends to be viewed. Scalp, S-C-A-L-P. The S is that we tend to view mental health at work as being something that is static and binary. That when you have a mental health condition, it's not changing, it's static. It's the same all the time. And that once you've got it, you've always got it. Of course, we know that's not true. It's far more dynamic than that. It changes with treatment, it changes at different times of people's lives. Clinical assessment is the tendency to focus on a clinically diagnosed disorder. And those are very important. However, harm to people that doesn't reach a diagnosed threshold is still very important and still what organisations have to manage. They have to manage harm that doesn't reach a diagnosis too because it's still a harm. And so we tend to focus on what diagnoses people have. And while that's very important, it's, it, it really shouldn't be where we're focusing because there's a much broader population that are potentially having negative effects that are subclinical. L is for lunch, which is a bit of a strange one, I know. Um, what I'm talking about here is that organisations tend to think that mental health is something that people bring with them like they bring their lunch. You bring it along with you to work. And yeah, I mean, that's true, but it's not where the focus should be. The focus should be on what you're taking home from the effect of the work system. And P is about performance and productivity and the tendency to think that mental health affects people's performance and productivity as opposed to flipping that and thinking about how the work system affects people's mental health and their productivity and performance. So these things need to be flipped a little bit. We know that mental health is much more dynamic than thinking that it's static and binary, that subclinical harms are just as important as clinical ones, that mental health is about the focus for workplaces we're talking about workplaces here. We're not talking about wider public health. We're talking about workplaces. Should be focusing on what people are taking home and how work affects them. And when they're at work, they should be focused on how, how work affects their productivity and performance while they're there. And so hopefully that um, model helps to identify some of the limitations that we have when we're thinking about mental health at work. And, um, and provide something that can resonate. Does that model kind of make sense? Is that a useful thing to use? That's great. I was road testing it on you. <laughs> Excellent. 
So to summarise then, um, preventing and managing psychological hazards are a key element of workplace health and safety. We should be using the normal, everyday risk management strategies that we're using all the time for every other kind of hazard. And that means that we should not just be looking at individual strategies, not just about health promotion or wellness programs, certainly not about resilience training, which I promised myself I wouldn't talk about because it's a bit of a soapbox issue. <clears throat> so it's not about wellness or resilience training, but about preventing the sources of harm through good work design, through getting the cake right, to use our metaphor once again. Thank you.